sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. It's your home for rumor, innuendo, and sex, drugs, rock and roll, secrets, all the things that you like because you listen to this podcast, or at least you found it this time. And we love to hear from you. Brian, how can everybody get in touch with us, by the way? It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. That's how that works. And, you know, normally we are not, uh, we're not a direct part of, of the drama that animates our weekly story. But this past week, we we sort of got in the middle of the matter. And that matter is copyright, publishing rights, owning the rights to a song. Yes. To give you a little backstory, last week uh, I got notices from lawyers that our little show here had drawn the attention of some people who were a bit upset about their music being included. So I just called Brian because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I know how to talk to lawyers and stuff, but I don't know. I can draft like so, a, so a memo I, to a I lawyer. I immediately but. called Brian. Yeah. So the complaint was sort of strange because it didn't really give a lot of detail. It just simply said there had been a complaint. Right. And in response to said complaint, a famous streaming service was going to remove two episodes of the show. Just, just two to start. Uh, it didn't give any other detail. So I immediately pulled up the show notes and our records that we have for all the shows that we've done and I started looking for commonalities and like why would these two random episodes be the offenders this is what I figured out I looked at them and they both had brief 30 second clips of a Beatles song included right and the Beatles catalog has notoriously been protected for years so this raised a question. It was like, what do we do? Right. And so there was, you know, one option was we could get into, into a dispute with a couple of multinational companies over what constitutes fair use, which I still argue what we do with the music clips on this show is fair use. Uh, But that seemed like, that seemed like trying to call Facebook. You know what I mean? Like that didn't seem like it was going to work. So I just decided to remove the tunes and then promptly write an episode about the issue. Yeah. And, if you follow all the news the last couple of years, um, there's been quietly behind the scenes some some commerce stories of musicians selling their stake in their own music for eleven billion dollars. So much. So money. it's like you like you see Springsteen sold his catalog and it was I mean it was a gargantuan amount of money, but he's in his almost mid Yeah, So this is this is a great point. And there is uh there's a link in the bottom of the show notes. If you want to go see this running list, there's this awesome website where it's basically the equivalent of somebody like you and I who has has just put their efforts into an internet site instead of a podcast. But it's called uh, a journal of musical things. And this guy who runs this site has just made a running list and he updated it within the last week of artists who have sold some or all of their song catalogs. Um, and so in most of them are being sold into these companies that are just making like giant reservoirs of, of cash making product. You know what I mean? Like they just, it, there's a couple of, in, of companies you'll see the names over and over that have just been leveraging probably private equity money, I guess, and just buying up the rights to stuff because every time one of these songs gets used for something, they get money, right? So that's why you would do this. Now, why would the artist do this, right? This was this is sort of the question because I think you think of like, you know, that's something you own. It's something you created. Why would you turn and sell it off? And I think 
you you hit on it, which is the old guard is turning over, and it'd be a lot easier to leave your family piles of cash than to let them fight over publishing rights to something that they don't really understand. I mean, you got to think, you know, you got to think like a lot of Springsteen's kids and grandkids and great grandkids don't, I mean, they probably appreciate him as a person and they maybe even appreciate the music, but they probably don't really understand the business side of it. Very few people do. And so it makes a little more sense to sort of just go ahead and get the cash that it's worth. But if you look at this list, it's not just Stevie Nicks and Springsteen. It's Imagine Dragons it's Jason Aldean. It's like all sorts of people have gone ahead and done this. So I thought this, as we, as we got to talking about this, you and I obviously off the mics as we were dealing with this issue, I also remembered that we did get in the stacks of letters that we get that I print off. Uh, <laughs> there's one from a fan named Jeff from, from, you know, it's been a little bit since Jeff sent us this letter, but he did write, we are the story guys at gmail.com and asked, I recently listened to a mailbag episode of the show where you mentioned that Justin Bieber had sold off his catalog. There's another name. Uh, I recall there being a big to do over the rights to the Beatles catalog. Could you give us the history of the Beatles catalog and who owns it today? Well, this will be a fun ride, won't it? It'll be a pretty long Excitement. ride. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's just state something that isn't as obvious as it probably should be. And I, I sort of alluded to this when I was talking about people selling off their catalogs, but it is called the music business for a reason. Yes. The music industry. Um, I mean, I mean, if I, you asked some people that are musicians, they it's like they refer to the music industry like they personify it as the devil. Yeah, I, I mean, it. I just thought for a long time that it's like you write it, you own it, you keep it, right? But it's it's really not that simple. No, it's not that simple. And the Beatles will be a great catalog to examine where like this is actually concerned because of how valuable it is. Like if you could own any like song catalog, right. You would want these, but also because there's something key about the Beatles that come into play immediately and complicates the rights conversation. And that's because they were writing and performing their own songs. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were doing the thing. They weren't just singing and dancing and doing everybody else's songs. Up to this point in the sixties, the writer and, and performer were usually different people. And then there's a person, an intermediary, and they were called the publisher. Right. Fantastic point. Let's let's plug a little music commerce history into this conversation quickly. Remember, in its earliest forms, this was like I, when I was researching this, I was like, oh, yeah, duh. But in its earliest forms, music wasn't recorded. It was written. So if you're running around in the 10th century humming some sweet tune you hear in your head, there's no way to make money on that because there's no technology with which to transfer it. There is no cool edit. Um, so <laughs> you need the printing press. I also Thank like goodness. that you're still calling it cool edit, even though it's not been cool edit for like 25 years. Uh, yeah. Cool edit is a piece of editing cool software edit. now owned by Adobe, which is called Audition, just uh, just so you know. Um, I know. I don't want to say Adobe owns anything, even though they own everything. Uh, well, and what people don't know is that before the start of this episode, we were dealing with an Adobe issue for like 20 minutes. So yeah, like, <laughs> no free ads, Adobe. Uh, okay, so... You're, Adobe, Adobe. You're exactly right. It had to start before we got to software uh, in with which we could cut up our own voices. Uh, we needed something to, uh, you know, take our written 
things and duplicate them. And so, yeah, we got the printing press. And I like I didn't know this, but it makes total sense. Like pretty much right after the Gutenberg Bible gets printed in the mid 15th century, uh, you get printed music. That's like the next thing. Uh, now, of course, it's church music because that's the only thing you were printing at that point was liturgical stuff. So no one's making any money off of that yet. But when you fast forward to King Henry VIII, this dude is looking for ways to bring money into his kingdom. He comes up with this concept of selling licenses for basically everything, including being able to print things. So that's the next piece of this. You have that tune in your head. You get someone to help you put it onto paper, but no money exchange hands until you try to actually print it. You go to the Gutenberg Bible Press, and you're like, here, print this do-do-do-do-do thing that I just wrote down. You're a publisher. You're a publisher. So it takes until 1709 for us to get to what is often considered the first real copyright law. That's something the British Parliament will pass. It's called the Statute of Anne in 1709. If you nerd out in history, like I do, uh, I dropped a full piece on the Statute of Anne in the show notes. Uh, It's fascinating, and I'm fighting the urge to get distracted by it. Uh, But, ironically... (laughs) The best shortcut to understanding that it's what it actually is, is is really just to read the long title. So it's the Statute of Anne, and then the long title is An Act for the Encouragement of Learning by Vesting the Copies of Printed Books and the Authors or Purchasers of Such Copies During the Times Therein Mentioned. Etc. Ba- basically meaning, yeah. Basically meaning, the statute determined that the term copy meant the sole liberty of printing and reprinting a book. And this liberty could be infringed by any other person who printed or reprinted that book, right? So only one person gets to benefit from the printing. Right, right, right. Now, notice the whole concept is tied up in the right to print or AKA publish. Fast forward a few decades, jump in ocean, you're in 1790, you get the first US version of this. It's a federal copyright law, which technically gives protections to maps, charts, and books. So again, the tune in your head isn't something you can own until it is printed and published. So 1794, the first registration in the U.S. for a musical composition was made by Raynor Taylor for a song, which feels appropriate for this podcast, called The Kentucky Volunteer. And Yeah, and it's a Tennessean. What is this about? Uh, <laughs> well, what the song we're is about... the Civil War. We're before the Civil yeah, War, yeah, yeah. so they haven't like said Tennessee people are volunteers. Right. But he prints a copy of it, and he gets the printed version of it copyrighted. So it takes all the way until 1831 for there to actually be a copyright act that covers music, 1831. So what does it mean to practically own the publishing on a song? American Songwriter has a piece, and they defined it this way. Every time a song is used in a television show or a movie or some other arena, the user has to pay a licensing fee. So some of that goes to the record label, some of that goes to the performer and the songwriter. So in the end, whoever owns the song is the one who gets paid. So now we need to hit the time warp and jump 130 years (laughs) in the future. To England, where the Beatles are still wearing leather jackets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you already said it, right? The Beatles had thrown a wrench in the system because when they started writing their own songs, they created a problem. Uh, when the Beatles make Please Me, Please Me, Brian Epstein, who's managing them, realizes that in the world of commerce, the eight original compositions on that 14 track LP, you know, you got six covers, eight that they wrote themselves, they aren't ownable items because they have not been moved from tune in my head to tune on paper in the commercial world. So they have to be quote unquote published. And that's how we get to this dude named Dick James. Yeah. And if you're a hardcore 
Beatles person or Beatles fan that knows about business of the Beatles and how they get to be the powerhouse they are, there's this trinity, the holy trinity. Sorry, Brian, I go there with that thing. <laughs> the trinity team. And that's that's Brian Epstein, the manager, George Martin, the producer, and then Dick James. And dude is dude, dude is a character. Because yeah, interesting guy. He, he was a singer first, and he was in vocal groups in the 50s, and he sang like British TV theme songs. Uh, and then he starts to see that career sort of go to the wayside, so he gets into the publishing business. He probably figured out this is where you make the money, and he makes some connections. One of the guys he meets early in his time in the publishing sphere is, is a, a, a fella who is, yes, you've already mentioned him. He's part of that triumvirate. His name is George Martin. And what a great networking opportunity that must have been at Buffalo Wild Wings in England that night. When I'm, just, Brian I'm just picturing them <laughs> sitting at a table with sauce all over their hands. Garlic Parmesan. Um, so when Brian Epstein mentions to George Martin that he's in a predicament because he, he needs publishing for these compositions, George Martin's like, I know a guy. His name's Dick James. And so that's how you get those three guys involved as sort of being owners. Well, it, it's important to remember where we are on the timeline, right? It's February of 63. So this is a year before the Beatles end up on Ed Sullivan. So they're basically unknown. And Brian's looking to give these guys access to the right people who can do the right things for them. And so when he meets Dick James, James promises he can not only handle the publishing, but really he can help with the publicity which are two separate things, very separate. But he's like, listen, radio, TV, all that stuff, I can make it happen for you. And, and the way I read this story was that Brian Epstein might be a little skeptical when he says this, so he like sort of calls his bluff. He's like, we'll prove it. And so he picks up the phone and like very quickly gets them what becomes their first TV appearance, way before Ed Sullivan. It's a British pop show called Thank Your Lucky Stars. And remember, Lennon's 22, McCartney's 20. And this guy has just proved that he can make things happen. So when he does this, and Epstein seems to be okay with it, and he puts contracts in front of these two young bucks, they don't really read them. Classic rock and roll story, right? Uh, and when has that ever happened? <laughs> every episode of the show. Uh, and they all together, James, Epstein, Lennon, and McCartney, and a partner of Dick James, who I also read Lennon and McCartney never met. They're like, this guy's name is in all the paperwork. And they are like, yeah, we don't know who that is. Uh, they all together will create something they call Northern songs limited. Right. And it's very important to point out here that Lennon and McCartney are writing the songs, not all four of them. So when the company is formed, Lennon and McCartney are part of Northern Songs, but George and Ringo are signed as songwriters mm. and they don't have an ownership state. Okay. So if you want to know the different what what publishing is, like I just told you. Yep. Like yep. George and Ringo were kind of employees. They were songwriters, but they didn't have ownership of the songs within that within Northern Songs. So the ownership belongs to Dick James, Epstein, uh, Lennon McCartney. Well, and I was thinking about this in terms of touring members of bands too. So uh, my wife and I saw Paramore this week and you know, th that band alive is seven people. That band, when you look at a picture of them is three people. And I didn't know for a very long time that what that signifier is. And this comes back to the business of music, music business thing, right? Which is that all those other people besides the three you see in the picture are contract employees. 
Like I, I never realized that that's how that works. That's why they're not in the art yeah. because they're not part of the business entity, right? And so this is a different variation on that, but the similar rule apply. It's like who is actually part of the business and who are they bringing in for help? And if you've ever listened to the show, ever, you know that when accountants get involved, the devil is in the details. So we can break the details of this deal down for a moment. This is how Dick James sets up the ownership in Northern Songs. Dick James gets 25% of the shares and his accountant and financial partner who these guys never meet, Charles Silver, gets 25%. John and Paul both get 20% and Epstein gets 10. But, and we're about to get real business school bullshitty for a second. And (laughs) I'm going to make that an official term of this show. We can put it on t-shirts. Bullshitty. In 1965, Northern Songs decides to go public. And the reason to do this has to do with the tax burden, right? We won't get into the details of that, but it's less taxes. Again, business school bullshitty. When they do this, Lennon and McCartney, there have, there have to be shares for them to sell to the public, right? So Lennon and McCartney dilute their shares. They diminish them. So they're now 15% each instead of 20. Ringo and George let their deals lap with Northern because they decide to start their own crap. And, the, and so they're not invested. And so Lennon and McCartney decide because they're doing this to go ahead and sign a contract that puts them as a part of Northern through 1973. And this is mid 60s. So they're signing a pretty long-term contract. Right. And we do have a pretty big moment here that changes everything for the Beatles. And that's the death of Brian Epstein, which has, who knows what kind of ripples in the in the water there with that group or with Lennon, like specifically. But because he dies, they end up going to see the Maharishi. And we've talked about that. <laughs> That's some amazing, interesting, fucking weird shit. Um, so they decide to try this idea that Epstein had actually been working on to create a tax effective business structure. And so they make a small group of companies like retail publishing, electronics and put it all under the name of this company I think you might know now called Apple. Uh, so Apple Corps Limited, um, it's like if you had a 45, it would like say that. And while we're doing this, they had a meeting with Dick James so they could renegotiate their publishing. And of course, you can imagine that didn't go well. Not at all. So here's the wildest thing I discovered by while researching this episode. I, and I'm very curious if you know this because... I know you 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 know even more about the Beatles offhand and off the top of your head than I do. I had no idea this happened though. So while they are creating this business venture that goes on to be Apple, they hire a team to start recording their endeavors and their business meetings because they're going to make this promotional piece to show capital and the EMI what they're doing and get them on board. So this fucking meeting with Dick James that will end up setting a historic course for ownership of this catalog. It's on film. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's in the show notes. I had no idea that that existed. I've seen footage. I've seen footage. I've seen footage of like <laughs> them walking around headquarters and stuff like that. Oh my I didn't God. know this existed. Dude, it's crazy. And it's uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable to watch. Uh, like aided by the fact that it's like 1960s recording technology. So it's not great. And it's a little grainy and stuff. Uh, There's a school of thought that this meeting being on camera becomes part of the problem because Paul and John, who did not have a super warm relationship with Dick in the first place, are pretty short with him about this whole issue. And that's not a very smart move. I really know him. Yeah, Yeah, because this guy has a lot of leverage over them. 
he owns a lot of shares of this company and he has a lot of interested buyers, but he's been telling them no for years because he's not interested in leaving the Beatles business. I mean, he, he has faith in this whole thing, right? Because he's part of the triumvirate. Um, one in particular, there's one in particular guy who is, who's knocking on his door a lot asking to buy his shares. And that is a guy named Lou grade. Oh, this guy's super interesting. Now, this is somebody they should have made a biopic or podcast series about. I actually Googled it when reading about him. I was like, have they not done anything about Lou Grade? And I can't, I didn't find anything quickly. Uh, Amazing subject. We can't be distracted by this. There's a lot of rabbit holes to be distracted by in the story. We're going to ignore them. But a great Google, and I will tell you, (laughs) I I will, I I get slightly distracted. Okay, this guy was once declared the world champion of doing the Charleston. That's, that's real. Um, which is unbelievable and and he gave us the muppet show yeah that's a lou grade thing and that's kind of how i know his name and have it kind of dialed back to the beatles like i'm knowing who who he is oh my god that's amazing Um, to me and what needs to be known for the purposes of today's topic is that this guy is like a shrewd british media businessman in the 60s who has been in tv and wants to start a music arm of his company but his company's called Associated Television. So we're going to talk about it. Yeah. We're just going to call it ATV. We are not talking about an ATV. all-terrain vehicle. Um, yeah. We are talking about Associated Television, which interestingly, we're really talking about music. So as confusing as that is, just hold on. We're going to call it ATV. You'll hear us talking about that. He starts buying up small shares of Northern from individuals who own tiny little pieces. So he just goes around and figures out who owns stock and offers them money for it. So he starts collecting little pieces of Northern. Occasionally, he'll call Dick James and he'll say, hey, Dick James, you want to sell? And Dick James will say no for a while. But then Brian Epstein dies. That's why you pointed this out. That's a huge moment because it affects so many things in the Beatles' history, and this is one of them. And the Beatles are trying to do this Apple thing, and he's starting to think they don't know what the hell they're doing. And they're being short and irritable with him, even though he's the guy who has all this business experience. And then... John Lennon starts being John Lennon, like late 60s, early 70s John Lennon. And Dick James is, I mean, he's starting to get concerned, and I would say maybe for good reason. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Limp Bizkit. Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. And if you step back from this story and just become a Beatles fan, like someone who would get on a plane to go to watch the Beatles love Cirque du Soleil thing at the Mirage in Vegas, you probably think that Dick James is an asshole. Right. He's been villainized right. for what he did in terms of the, his ownership of, of the, the publishing. But if you 
get out of the shoes of the Beatles fan and into the shoes of a capitalist or a person that's trying to raise a family. He is a businessman and is just trying to play the long game and be logical with his investment. So there's a bunch of stuff in the show notes from the Paul McCartney project. And if you are a Beatles head or want to become a Beatles head, that's a great place to go. Paul McCartney project.com like these deep archives on all these moments in Beatles history. This is, I'm actually going to quote from a piece on there. Late 1968, Dick James became worried about the erratic behavior of John Lennon, his drug conviction, the nudity on the album, two virgins. These are all things we could do episodes about Uh, his involvement with Yoko Ono uh, and their bagism concept, (laughs) which again, we're not going to get distracted, but Google bagism and the consequences that it might have on his stake in Northern songs, which all makes sense. With your, like you said, if you're just thinking about it like a rational person and not as a Beatles fan. Yeah, and it's on the, it's, it's the stock exchange. That's where a, ATV is. So, um, I mean, he wants to protect his investment, right? Buy low, sell high. Yeah, man. So thinking about this timeline, you, you know what the straw that broke the camel's back is? The thing that yes. caused Dick James to sell to Lou Grade? Yes, of course. It's, it's Alan fucking Klein. We have to have... Kong, we, I was gonna say we King need like Kong theme Bundy, music. <laughs> Big Jim Slade, Andre the Giant. Whenever the bad guy, big villain, bum, bum. Has to come in, it's it's Alan Klein. Oh like, my god, so here, dude. here he is to to kind of to kind of break up the Beatles. Okay? Yeah, I mean we've talked ab- we've talked about him tons on the show already, but his reputation was not great. And so when he comes in, Dick's like, dude, like I, I just picture him just like. Going home, pouring a big glass of bourbon and picking up the phone and calling Lou and being like, here you go. And that is, that's the short answer on how ATV got 35% of Northern songs. Yeah. And so you can see how people don't like Dick James, right? So Lennon and McCartney are super pissed because they didn't even get a chance to buy Dick James out themselves, which they probably wanted to and probably could. But James claimed it would have killed the deal, and he was trying to act in their best interest, which is a great thing. Yeah, okay, hold, here's, here's a quote for that, because it is, it is bullshitty. It's not business school bullshitty, it's just regular bullshitty. Uh, what I did, James said, quote, I did in their interest as well as mine and the rest of the shareholders. I hope that one day I can justify my decisions to them. I was not acting behind their backs. I believed I was acting for them and for the whole future good of the company. Now, I, I will only say this for business school bullshitty purposes, which is like the stock exchange is weird. And so he may have a little bit of a point that if this rumor got out that think there was all this unrest, then it would cause problems to happen with the stock. Yada, yada, yada. But again, if you're thinking simplistically, like you and I as rock fans, or if, as you said, like as the Beatles fan, it's like, dude, why don't you give these guys a chance to to buy, just take it all? It, yeah. it does sort of but, suck. Yeah, so uh, so ATV uh, attempts to to buy out the, the entire rest of the company. So, of course, Lennon McCartney refused that deal. So you can get in the weeds on, on this if you want to. Again, I, there's a lot of stuff in the show notes to dig through. It... it, it there's this other piece in the Paul McCartney project archive that follows this in like this painstaking detail. And it really gets business school bullshitty, but basically I'm going to try to like explain this. Like I would to a kindergarten class. Imagine that you've got a pie and you've cut it into pieces and to control the pie, you have to have more than half of it. And so John and Paul have a couple of decent pieces, but that doesn't add up to a half. ATV has a piece that's bigger than theirs combined, but that doesn't add up to a full half right? There's still this third of the pie that's out there and it's been divided up into tiny little dessert slices that 
people all over have on their plates, right? And so now both entities are just running to try to collect a bunch of the little pieces that'll push them over having half the pie. And the way this works in this sort of situation is that both parties make an appeal to all the people who own tiny slices of the pie. And they try to convince them, hey, you should sell me part of your piece of the pie because I'm going to be better at controlling this than the other person. So it becomes a little bit of a campaign, right? Who do you think is going to do a better job of protecting your investment? Because for these people, it's not about the Beatles. It's an investment since they went public, right? So again, this is all... This was the music business. The music business. Uh, So John and Paul, (laughs) just John and Paul fuck this up every chance they get. They bring in Lee Eastman and Alan Klein. Now, we talked about this when we've talked about Alan Klein on the show before. Lee Eastman is, at the time, Paul's wife's uh, dad. So, father-in-law. His father-in-law. So he's got a personal vested interest. We had somebody, after we did the Alan Klein show, and we said something about how Paul was smarter or whatever, uh, one of our fans, it might have been Diane, I forget who it was, somebody who listens to the show regularly was like, didn't Paul just try to bring in his father-in-law? And I was like, yeah, that is true. Good point. So it, that's what he does. He brings in family, which is not smart. And then Alan Klein, of course, is there being Alan Klein. And they are saying they're trying to get 51% of the company, but they both mostly just like yell at each other in meetings. And then John finds out during this process, John finds out that Paul, without telling him, had gone and bought some shares privately from private people. Yeah, so he never now, knew that. He, he never knew that till the, today. He now actually owns more than John. And that pisses John off. So there's also this whole side dispute happening because there's a trust that controls 90% of Epstein's former company. And there's a royalty payout issue where the trust keeps insisting that the Beatles owe the trust money, like they would have owned Epstein, owed Epstein. And that trust, not only is that dispute going on, but that trust is also a shareholder in this larger conversation about publishing. So, I mean, Paul and John just fucked it up, like bad, all over the place, because they're young guys who were even younger when they signed this deal, uh, you know, less than a decade before this. So, I mean, I don't even know if they're in their 30s at this point, late 60s, or if they're in their 30s at this point. The whole situation is confusing, confounding, more than a little bit of a mess. It's rough. Yeah. And I mean, so to get us home, like what happens now? Like it's, it's going to be unexpected because at some point you surrender. Right. 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 So again, this is all like boardroomy sort of stuff, but the independent shareholders form this consortium and that group eventually accepts an offer from ATV because they believe that if the Beatles had retaliated with a higher offer, the Beatles wouldn't have actually been able to afford it. And so they would have, they, they, they just basically ran it as, as long and as hard as they could to get the most amount of money possible and pushed for the best deal. Because again, it's just a business interest to them. And long story short, the Beatles have to sell off their shares, but that's not actually what ATV wanted. That's not really what Lou grade wanted. He didn't want the Beatles out of this, but the Beatles had contractual obligations. Cause when they did that re-signing, when they went public, mm-hmm. they agreed to stay on until 73 and write at least six songs a year that would go back into this to make it a continual investment, right? So they basically strike this deal where they're like, cool, we're out, but you have to let us out of this thing so that for the next, like, whatever it was, four or five years, we don't have to keep writing dumb songs for this that you're going to make more money off of than us. 
And that is how, by January of 1970, ATV has 99% ownership of this company. So, just imagine, instead of being a Beatles fan, you're a songwriter, and someone else, another organization, somebody, bunch of, a whole bunch of people got together, and now they own 99% of your publishing company of the songs that you write. Like, that's how bad that got fucked up. That's, oh, dude. I mean, I can't imagine. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I sat next to someone recently. I looked over, and they had a T-shirt that said, uh, bad decisions make for good memories, or something like that. Uh, bad decisions also make for good songs. Good songs come out of bad times. Paul will write a song called You Never Give Me Your Money in the aftermath of this. Yeah, perfect. You know what? I mean, now you know what that song's about. I do love that. And, I, and you know, I don't know. Do you want to sing it? Because I'm not going to put a clip into this program. <laughs> you never give me your money. Do, you do, do. give me your funny paper. Okay, I'm only doing that, that much. I know, that may be. I don't know if that's fair use. Anyway, a little over a decade later, ATV is going to hit hard times. This is this is the next chapter of the story, right? So we're, we're sort of in the first chapter. We got all this drama with the Beatles, and they're out. And Lin- and John's, John's dead, right? We're like 80s. Well, yeah. So John dies, and then ATV hits hard times, and they think about selling off some of their assets. And so Paul and Yoko now make an offer. Uh, Lou grade ATV do not find a suitable. Uh, and, and Paul is a little concerned about the PR angle because John has died and there was, you know, we sort of forget this, but there was a lot of this speculation about like, how did John and Paul feel about each other when John died? I think mm-hmm. a lot of that's yeah. sort of gone away. I think now you just think of, Oh, it's the Beatles. And I mean, we knew that there was some infighting, but for the most part, everything was cool. But, He's concerned about what it's going to look like if he just goes and buys out John's rights, especially like over Yoko or whatever, right? So what ends up happening is there's this guy who who goes down in history as being Australia's first billionaire, and he will end up launching a takeover bid for ATV, much like ATV launched a takeover bid of Northern Songs, uh, and he will launch that in 1982, and Lou Grade gets kicked out of the company. So, Paul, I, I told you, he had, his first reaction to this is he writes a great song. He also has a second reaction to all of this, and that is that he learned about the value of song publishing. <laughs> and I got to say, yeah. I got to hand it to Paul. This is, like, pretty cool. So, here's what he does. He's like, well, I don't own my own songs, but I can own plenty of other people's songs because I do have money. So, he starts buying the publishing of other artists. Right. Classic shit. He makes just a truckload of money. Uh, Enough to brag about it, for sure. Yeah, and then this is where we get to talk about my least favorite citizen growing who grew up in Gary, Indiana, ever. ever. That's Michael Jackson. So we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna do this turn after we've talked about Alan Klein and the Beatles and Lee Eastman. Yeah, if we've got to talk about if we got to talk about Michael Jackson double cross. If you don't know this story then this is surprising. This is where we end up. But again, think about the time period. This is early 80s. I've heard different versions of this story, so I'm just going to tell the one I like the most. Depending yeah, on which version... The one that I like the most. Yeah, too, oh yeah. By the way. So, okay. It depends on which version you read. This happens somewhere between 81 and 83, but it's always sort of connected to when Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson work on this duet, their second duet together, a song called Say, Say, Say. Do you have opinions on Say, Say, Say? I. Uh, 
I, I like Michael Jackson's parts better than Paul's parts, but I think it, it seems like a cut and paste. Yeah, I hate that song. Well, I, just I mean, really do. What's crazy though is that it wasn't a cut. Like now, like duets are mostly like just done across continents or whatever and smacked together. But they, he, Michael actually lives with Paul briefly, is the way the story goes while they're doing this. Yeah, yeah, because they're in London. And so one night after dinner, and I'm assuming some drinks or pot or something, they're talking about life. They're talking about business, whatever. And, and Paul, I, I just like to imagine that Paul's a little tipsy and just wants to sort of like swing his dick around, but not literally. Uh, and so. He pulls out this book. He's got this big, thick leather book on a shelf. And he's like, Look at my leather bound book. I know, I know. That, all that, the songs that I own. <laughs> That's what it is. It's full of his publishing. So he's like, These yeah. are all the songs that I own. And and he just like casually drops it to Michael. Uh, oh, yeah. I made this only made me about $40 million last year. $40 million in the early 80s. Good God. So you have to assume. That at some point during this conversation, it becomes pretty obvious that something's conspicuously missing from this book. Like I, I like yeah, to imagine where's... MJ's just like flipping through looking for Beatles songs. And he's like, Where where's I wanna hold your hand? Like if he starts <laughs> asking for specific songs and he's like, Why aren't the Beatles songs in this leatherbound book? There's versions of this story that I think are bullshit where Michael's like, Well, one day I wanna own the Beatles songs. Like who why would he say that? But they they this is how the story gets told. I don't think that's true, but the convo does have an impact on MJ. He starts looking into how to do this. So he's like, I, this is pretty good advice, Paul. Maybe I can play this game too. Now I told you the Australian billionaire bought the company. Turns out he wasn't really interested in running it as a business. So he like fires everybody and then he puts it back up for sale. Now you hear this story about what happens next with Michael as being some weird, devious, underhanded sneak attack. But I did read that McCartney gets a chance to make an offer on the catalog when it goes back up for sale and he can't make an agreement. So Michael Jackson has this lawyer named John Bronca and he, John Bronca actually hears that this is up for sale and he knows because he's been talking to Michael that Michael is trying to get into this publishing deal stuff and he's done some. And so he calls MJ and unlike McCartney, MJ is not into pinching his pennies in this regard. And so he just tells the lawyer to make it happen. Yeah. And and this catalog isn't just Beatles songs, by the way. So since then there's thousands of songs, there's 250 Lennon McCartney songs, but there's, there's tracks by Springsteen stones and, and Elvis. I mean, it's tons more. It's It's like the mother mother load. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. So, Basically, what happens is they take bids on the catalog. And the highest bid up to this point was $40 million. I mean, we already heard that McCartney made $40 million that one year. So why he wouldn't just do this I, is beyond me. But for some reason, he wouldn't. So Jackson and Bronca prepare an offer to scare people off. And they're just like, listen, we'll pay $47.5 million dollars for those 4,000 songs. And that's like probably over 110 million now. Anyway, ATV's owner at the time tentatively tentatively accepted the offer and then they start due diligence. And so there, this is the part that you never hear about this story. It takes 10 months to do this deal. 
Jackson has to pay his lawyers over a million dollars, and here's why. He sends a legal team to the U.S. Library of Congress to study the validity of each of the 4,000 songs copyrights because he wants to make sure he doesn't get fucked. And how many lawyers are here? I mean, how many lawyers? More than 100. Yeah. That's why it costs a million dollars. There's eight different contracts. Both sides finally agree on a deal in October of 1985, and the deal is done. And the years afterward, that allowed Michael Jackson to remain solvent. To be oh, yeah, cause honest, because Michael Jackson could not spend money correctly. He was really bad at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all kind of know that. So this was like the best investment ever. And he would use it for collateral and loans and shit, which is <laughs> totally fascinating. Um, but so I got the, so, sorry, we shouldn't do Michael Jackson impressions, but it's, it, is, it is fun to think about Michael Jackson like telling a, a banker, well, you know, it's just got all the Beatles songs. Just, you know, well, you can use that as collateral. Yeah, trying to buy like a timeshare or like the entire floor of Do you a think he penthouse. just offered certain songs? It's like, I got help. You can have help as collateral for <laughs> Now we're just fucking around. So, but he dies. I don't I know if Penny everybody Lane. knows that. He died, he died the same day as Farrah Fawcett, which no one remembered at all. So then someone, <laughs> someone gets to have that all of those songs and that publishing and who gets that. So Sony, cause so, okay, here's, here's what happens. So there's a whole thing that happens before between him buying that and his death there, there's a whole series of events that happens. Okay. So you got to hang with me on this. So we said he's no good at money and he's collateralizing loans and crap. So he, at a certain point in like, I want to say 95, he, is in some serious financial trouble. So he, he's trying to figure out how he can leverage the catalog. So he calls Sony music. And so that's why you will see, and I never realized I, I used to see this all the time. Sony ATV music publishing. Oh, that's, that's what that is. That's what that is. It's yeah. a merging of yeah. ATV music with Sony music. And so basically he gets, he gets a big chunk of money, but he gives them 50% of the company. So he, it's half these now. So he owns half. And it during this process, like the northern songs part of the entity disappears. And so that's that's finally dissolved. So that lasts for like 10 or 11 years. And then before he dies in 2006, he's continuing to have financial difficulties for lots of reasons we don't even need to go into around lawsuits and lawyers, I'm sure. And he's getting really close to bankruptcy. And so Sony negotiated a refinancing of his debts and they gained an option to acquire 50% of his 50%. Okay. So that's like 75% that they would then own. And then he dies in 2009 and John Bronca, who we mentioned earlier, the lawyer who thought of this idea in the first place, he and John McClain, not the guy from Die Hard, a music industry executive, <laughs> They're the executors of his will. And his family does not like that. That's probably a whole other episode of this show. And so Jackson's estate will sell its shares of Sony ATV Music Publishing to Sony. Okay? So you're following all this? So now Sony has everything. That gets us to 2017. So we're now within the last decade. In 2017... McCartney will bring a lawsuit against Sony ATV because he wants the right to get his stuff back. And I mean, he had really good lawyers and I'm sure he was paying a lot, 
because there's a 1976 U.S. copyright law that would make his stuff recoverable in 2018. So, because there was like a, a time limit. It was like you can own it for a certain amount of time and then the original person right. gets an option. And so 2018 would have made would have been that line. So the suit is McCartney versus Sony ATV Music Publishing. It's in district court in the Southern District of New York. It gets settled out of court in June of that year. So we actually don't know exactly what was worked out because it's they did it privately. Um, so we don't know exactly how the settlement impacted McCartney's publication rights, but we do know that it was McCartney's lawyer who put in the dismissal. So something happened. Something good, right? Because they decided to drop it. So, it appears that while we don't know how much he owns, McCartney owns some. (laughs) He owns some of his songs again. Uh, Enough enough to where he isn't complaining about it. uh, Enough that he isn't complaining about it. So, that's the very complicated answer about what happened to the Beatles catalog and all their copyrights. And, you know, and now this is why Sony and universal and all these companies come after, um, folks when they hear you, you know, splicing in snippets of their songs, uh, because yeah, and it's the music business. Yeah. And, and really the it's, if, if you're just a music junkie and you don't know anything about publishing, like it's a pretty gross road to go down, but like you kind of have to, so you can find out where, you know, big artists like lost because the stories about people that signed the really bad contracts, like they're in the majority. There's very few like stories about like, you know, I was 18 and I signed the best record contract ever. It's like, no, well, and no and one did the way and those the stories yeah. are terrible. The way yeah. those stories end though, is to bring us full circle back where we started, which is like with some of these people who do like Bob Dylan, who do own the rights to a bunch of their stuff and then are able to sell it at the end of their life for hundreds of millions of dollars and make sure that their family and their foundation and whoever else are all going to, you know, be fine for a while. Um, but yeah, it does feel like you typically hear this, the, the bad version of this, not the good version of this. If, if you've got comments on this, if you have more questions about this, trust me, there's a lot to dig through. Again, hit the show notes, but also email us. We are the story guys at gmail.com. That's an easy way to do it. Instagram uh, slash rock and roll bedtime stories. That will put you with us. Um, and then there's Patreon. And if you... All this money talk has inspired you to support the work that you care about. Um, you can throw us some bones and we'll give you bonus episodes and some extra things all at patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Um, and remember also louder than life. We've got your chance to go to that music festival that's happening in September at the Highlands ground music festival place in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, lots of bands that you're going to want to see there. Um, sign up to win tickets, find that link in the show notes. Whew. All right. So what do we do? Until next time, Mr. Murdoch. Make sure you don't sell your publishing rights to some scumbag lawyer. And just (laughs) tell normal, fun stories. Keep telling them, baby. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.